0: In 1872, the United States Supreme Court denied Mrs. Myra Bradwell, who had apprenticed, passed the bar exam, and had support from legal professionals, the right to practice law. Their decision quoted the Supreme Court of Illinois' opinion that allowing women to be attorneys was never contemplated. A lot has changed in the legal profession since 1872, but there is always room for improvement. From the Florida Bar's Henry Latimer Center for Professionalism, this is Never Contemplated.
1: Hello, and welcome to this episode of Never Contemplated. I'm your host, Haddle Desai. In this series, we've been exploring different paths to the judicial bench in Florida. A few years ago, I had the honor of meeting Judge Joseph Hatchett, Florida's first African-American Supreme Court justice after Reconstruction. He was appointed in 1975 and the first African-American appointed to the Federal Fifth Judicial Circuit Appellate Court. Judge Hatchett was on a panel discussing his opinion in Lucy Morgan v. State, in which he wrote that the First Amendment protects reporters from government coercion and that the state could not force a newspaper reporter to disclose the source of her information. During that discussion, as an aside, he mentioned that when he took the Florida bar exam in 1959, it was held at a hotel in Miami that denied accommodations to people with his skin color. Later, his skin color was used against him when he was told that the only reason he was selected to serve on the Supreme Court was because he was Black, despite his extensive civil rights and litigation experience. When he won his first retention race, he said, If it has any value, it is the value some young person could get in terms of motivation, knowing they can succeed in spite of being poor and being Black. It is remarkable that despite the odds and challenges, he and other African-American judges like Justice Leander Shaw and Judge Stephen Mickle and others succeeded in the legal profession and became astounding jurist. But Judge Hatchett was not the first African-American judge in Florida. James Dean was admitted to the Florida Bar in 1884 and became Florida's first African-American elected judge in 1888 as a county judge in Monroe County. Unfortunately, less than a year after being elected, Judge Dean was removed from the bench by the governor after he allegedly issued a marriage license to an interracial couple. More than 100 years later, in 2002, Governor Jeb Bush reinstated Judge Dean posthumously to the bench. Florida did not have its first African-American female judge until 1981 when Governor Bob Graham appointed Leah Sims to serve as a county judge in Miami-Dade County. Judge Sims, a seasoned prosecutor, was easily re-elected a year later. She paved the way for other African-American jurists, such as Melva Green, who became the first female African-American circuit judge in 1989, and Justice Peggy Quince, who was the first African-American appointed appellate female judge in 1993, and who became the first African-American female justice on the Florida Supreme Court in 1998. She later became the chief justice in 2008. Following in these amazing jurist footsteps is our next guest, the Honorable Jessica Costello. In 2019, Judge Costello was appointed to fill a county court seat, becoming one of the youngest appointed judges and the first African-American female appointed judge in Hillsborough County in 20 years. Prior to becoming a judge, she was a local and statewide prosecutor for 10 years, Judge Costello has been named a top government attorney by Florida Trend Magazine and was named Florida Gang Prosecutor of the Year in 2016. Judge Costello serves on the 13th Judicial Circuit Professionalism Panel and on numerous legal and community boards. If you follow her on Twitter, she is constantly showcasing opportunities for professionalism and volunteering her time to speak to lawyers and law students. Welcome, Judge Costello, and thank you for being here. Let's dive right in. The last time I saw you, I think we were getting ready for Hurricane Ida, and you were also getting ready to celebrate your son's third birthday. It looks like
0: you survived both. Uh, How did you fare? Well, first, thank you for having me. Um, I'm really honored to have the opportunity to speak with you today. Really looking forward to this discussion. Uh, We did make it to the other side of Hurricane Ida, and our son, Cameron's third birthday. We just uh, essentially merged the two and basically threw him a, a hurricane birthday party, which he enjoyed. That
1: sounds lovely. Now, you are located in Hillsborough County, but you're not from Tampa, are
0: you? I'm not. I'm not. Where are you from originally? I was born and raised in Columbia, South Carolina, where both of my parents grew up in large families on farms in South Carolina. They were also, both my mother and father, one of nine children. My dad's from a small town about an hour outside of Columbia, which is the capital, and my mom is from a small town right outside of Charleston, South Carolina.
1: And how did you end up in Florida?
0: I ended up In Florida, by virtue of a scholarship, a national merit scholarship, I received a full academic scholarship to the University of Florida and came here right after graduating high school. I'm a proud alum of the Gator Nation, and after receiving a bachelor's degree in political science, I then decided to become a house divided unto myself and went to Tallahassee and then attended the Florida State University College of Law.
1: I also am a house divided uh, and myself, and but I did the opposite. But uh, you ended up in law school. Uh, how did you decide to go to law school since your parents were not lawyers, right? They were not.
0: Um, both of my parents came from... Uh, science and mathematical backgrounds. And it's interesting that I ended up becoming a lawyer because of their backgrounds were so different. Um, My parents were the first generation in my family's history to attend college. My mother has a bachelor's degree in biology and a master's degree in special education. And my dad has a bachelor's degree in mathematics. So you would think with those sort of backgrounds, I would have been led down a more empirically or scientifically based career path. But instead, what it led to was throughout my childhood, my parents had a requirement that whenever my sister or I expressed an opinion as a fact, uh, that we had to follow up whatever that opinion was with the evidence supporting our opinion. So for example, um, when I was a child and expressed skepticism about uh, the existence of Santa Claus. Um, They'd always ask, well, what evidence leads you to that opinion? And then, you know, I'd go on and explain why. I'd say, you guys both look very tired on Christmas Day. I saw matching (laughs) wrapping paper in the closet to what's under the tree, et cetera, et cetera. And so no matter what opinion I expressed, their first question and response would always be to ask me for the evidence supporting my opinion. So I should have known that perhaps They were leading me down a path toward a career where matching facts and evidence were part of my daily life. I would say that. And they're they're both big John Grisham fans. So I should have known.
1: Well, it seems like they groomed you well for law school and and your sister also ended up becoming
0: a lawyer. Is that right? He did. My younger sister, she is two years uh, younger than me, and she also attended the University of Florida, where she remained and received her Juris Doctorate, and she's an attorney in Houston, Texas.
1: So your parents were not lawyers, but it sounds like education was probably important to them since they were the first uh, in their families to go to college. Is that true? Absolutely.
0: I come from a family that deeply values education My mother recently retired after an almost 30-year career as an educator to children with special needs. And both of my parents were really deeply involved in ensuring that my sister and I were committed to our educational goals. So whether that was preparing for the science fair or debate team, they always had very high expectations because they knew our potential and they really believed in us. And so um, as a child, I never, Shied away from a debate We they always empowered us to discuss our perspectives and opinions that translated to me being really involved in speech and debate as a student. And early on, because they were the type of parents who always asked us to support our opinions with evidence, I grew up always asking the question why, uh, as many children are very apt to do. Um, I like to understand how things worked. My parents encouraged me to, uh, to to follow those sort of questions and to try to understand what the what made the world around me the way it was. And so I was a big question asker, uh, if that's a phrase, a big question asker from an early age and I continue to be one today.
1: Well, is that how you ended up being
0: a, uh, a prosecutor? You know, it's interesting because I went to law school thinking that I was going to be a trial lawyer. I knew that I wanted to be a trial lawyer, um, but I also very much thought that I was going to become the next uh, Jerry Maguire, if you will. I went to law school thinking about uh, entering sports law and had a very good fortune during the course of my time in law school to have the opportunity to clerk in the field of sports. My first year of law school, that first summer, between the first and second year, I clerked for the PGA Tours legal department. And then my second year of law school, I clerked for the NFL's legal department in New York City. And ironically, that work is what ultimately led me to becoming a prosecutor. My mentor, a gentleman by the name of Dennis Curran, who currently leads the NFL's Management Council, which is the bargaining arm of the league, began his career at the Miami State Attorney's Office and encouraged me to pursue that career path if I wanted to come back to the NFL someday. And I'll never forget him saying to me, if you wanna come back here, that's a a path to being able to return here. But I'll tell you that as someone who spent a substantial portion of his own career as a prosecutor, that once you you start down that path, you're not gonna come back. And I, I took his advice. I started my career as a prosecutor in Jacksonville, Florida. And he was 100% right. I fell in love with the work and uh, I've never looked back.
1: Well, speaking of sports, I understand that you are an avid hiker and that you uh, share one of your life goals is to uh, hit every national park in America, which is also on my bucket list. Um, (laughs) How many national parks have you been to? Let
0: me think. I've been to 11 national parks. My husband and I really enjoy hiking and our national parks are just you know an absolute treasure so we've traveled a lot during the course of our relationship and enjoyed national parks from zion national park in utah the grand canyon which of course is beautiful and amazing to yosemite and yellowstone grand teton national park uh, golden gate national park and the weir woods in uh, california The Great Smoky Mountains National Park is a South Carolinian right next door in North Carolina. Congaree National Park, which is very overlooked unless you're from South Carolina. And uh, the Everglades, because are you really a Florida resident if you haven't been there and searched for an alligator? So we really enjoy that and it is on our bucket list. We're slowly making our way through it. Well, that sounds great. Um, I know that you like the hiking
1: part. Uh, What about the camping part?
0: My husband's a lot more of a camper than I am. And when I think about our our trips, luckily, I plan most of them. So I get to decide what the accommodations are. And one of our favorite, one of my favorite, at least, National Park vacations that we've taken was to Yosemite. And that's in large part because it was bookended by a weekend in Santa Monica, California, and a weekend in Napa. So it was one of those trips where we had the perfect balance of outdoor physicality and relaxation.
1: Yeah, I I bet you can't wait to start traveling again after after the COVID and tying into the uh the hiking and camping. What do you do at home now to take care of yourself for wellness and for just making sure that you have some balance in your life?
0: I'm really glad that you asked that question, especially given the sort of state of circumstances that we're all in. My mother often said to us growing up that you can't drink from an empty well. Becoming a mom has highlighted for me the truth of that anecdote uh, more than ever. And so the importance of knowing sort of the things that help help me to remain centered so that I'm able to be there and be strong for others. So during the pandemic, for me, it's really been a focus on trying to keep up with exercise and physical health. And for others, it may be something as simple as reading uh, for pleasure or an artistic outlet, but it's really more important now than ever to find ways to take care of yourself so that you can assist others. When you were appointed
1: to your position in Hillsborough County, it made news because there had not been an African-American female judge appointed for 20 years. How did you handle that honor?
0: There truly aren't words to describe how humbling it was. In the moment, I learned that I would be given the opportunity to serve. And in addition to, you know, the sheer emotion of of that moment, one of the first things that I thought about when I realized I was going to have the honor of being appointed and learned what that meant within the historical narrative, if you will, of our circuit, the first thought that came to mind was those that came before me. The 13th Circuit's primary courthouse in downtown Tampa is named after George Edgecombe, who was Hillsborough County's first African-American assistant state attorney, and would go on to become the first African-American judge in our circuit in 1973 at the age of 31. When you talk about building a sustained legacy in a short period of time, his example is extraordinary here in the 13th Circuit. And so it was very important for me once I realized that I would be walking in George Edgecombe's footsteps and the footsteps of the extraordinary judges who have followed since him. It was important for me to live up to their legacy and to acknowledge that I am standing on the shoulders of giants, if you will, and to do all that I can on a daily basis to be worthy of being considered alongside them. And I'll tell you that, on the day of my investiture, Mrs. Edgecombe, who is widely considered to be the matriarch of our courthouse, gave the benediction for that day. And it was so meaningful to me and so many others for her to be a part of that day. And there, there isn't a day or a week that goes by that I don't reflect on the legacy of those that have come before me and have gratitude for the opportunity to follow in those footsteps.
1: Well, you mentioned personally the NFL counsel that kind of steered you toward the state attorney's office. Who are some other mentors who affected your trajectory personally?
0: So during the course of my career this far, I would describe uh, my mentors and role models as those who've fallen into probably one of three categories. They'd be mentors, friend tours, and advocates. I love that friend tours (laughs) and mentors are sort of those people who have, you know, we understand what this sort of role they fill. They've successfully navigated their career paths and they provide guidance on how I, the lawyer, can do what they've accomplished. And one of the first mentors I had was Judge Angela Cox in the Fourth Circuit in Jacksonville, Florida. When I was a rookie prosecutor, she was the very first judge. I practice in front of uh, Judge Cox is an extraordinary jurist who's trailblazing in her own right, a brilliant legal mind, and really the embodiment of the consummate professional and just sort of the ability to balance the role with grace. She's somebody that I look up to to this day, and. Having Judge Cox as the first judge I appeared in front of recently came full circle for me because she also serves as the assistant dean of the Florida Judicial College that trains all new judges in the state of Florida. And she's a problem solver and somebody that I've really relied on in that mentor role to give me perspective on navigating tough issues. We laughed a little bit, but then I would sort of explain the next category of people who've been influential in my career trajectory as friend tours. Those are contemporaries, those friends who you can vent to, but whose perspective and advice you trust as you're sort of making your way through your respective careers. And I often uh, think of friend tours as people who help you answer the why should I or hypothetical questions in your career because they know you well and they can help you determine if an opportunity or a decision fits who you are as a lawyer. Those sorts of people that you have long conversations with over cups of coffee. So for me, uh, those friend tour relationships have very much grew out of my career path as a prosecutor and opposing counsel that I've worked with along the way. Um, so when I think about those individuals, I, they're individuals whose perspective I value not only because of the depth of their experience, but because they were trustworthy. And I would also probably add my mom lawyer friends to that group as I become a new mom, those individuals who I rely on to discuss navigating motherhood and the practice of law. And then one of the sort of underestimated categories of mentor relationships that are very important would be those of advocates, you know, those people who want you to succeed and maybe in a place to directly help you do so so those are the people who would make a phone call on your behalf or an introduction or a recommendation and while they may not be involved in decision making the way that mentors and friend tours have been they were really pivotal part of my career growth those are the people who i say answer the yes can questions i've decided through conversations with my mentors and friend tours i want to do x i want to become a judge can you help me as I try to move toward this goal? And so I'm really grateful that I've had the blessing of all three of those categories, mentors, mentors, and advocates throughout my career. Well, speaking of becoming
1: a judge, what was the process like for you? And what advice do you have for others that are trying to go through the appointment process?
0: Um, so when it comes to answering the question of what made me decide to become a judge, uh, at the time I made the decision to throw my hat into the ring, I was working as an assistant statewide prosecutor for the Office of the Florida Attorney General. And in that role, I was directing investigations and prosecuting multi-jurisdictional organized crime cases. So I was handling matters ranging from gang racketeering to human trafficking and At that time, I was also working on building counterterrorism investigations under the umbrella of statewide prosecution. So with a caseload and a jurisdictional mandate that covered the whole state during my time as an assistant statewide prosecutor, I had the good fortune of appearing in front of judges from the Panhandle to the Florida Keys. And the the benefit of that is that it really gave me a broad perspective on the role that judges fill and the variety of ways that it can be accomplished. And so I often refer to county court as the people's court. And that's because statistically the vast majority of people who have an interaction, if any, with the court system, uh, that interaction will occur in county court. And at my core, I really am a people person. So it really felt like the perfect timing for me, moving into the judiciary and asking for the opportunity to do that felt like a chance to take some of my strongest skill sets and put them to their highest use. And that's really what fueled my decision to do it.
1: Okay. And what advice do you have for other people who are interested in going through the process? What can they do to prepare themselves to increase their chances for an appointment?
0: I think the biggest piece of advice I would give to anyone who may have any inclination that at some point they want to enter the judicial appointment process is that it's never Too soon to learn how the appointment process works and here in Tampa, and I know across the state, our local bar associations have done an extraordinary job. In producing programming that provides information about the judicial appointment process and I know the Florida bar has done the same thing on a statewide level. And I think it's very insightful to be able to begin looking at those resources and getting some perspective before a judicial vacancy occurs. And the other piece of advice that I would give to anyone who's considering uh, going down this path is to take a a look and start reviewing the judicial appointment application sooner than later. Um, The application is publicly available, and it asks for a lot of information. Taking the time to take a look at it before a person decides whether or not they'd even like to apply can really give you important context for the preparation that is necessary to compile a full and complete application. So those would be my two biggest pieces of advice. Well, jumping
1: back to working in the state attorney's office, I know that you did a short stint in private practice and you ended up going back to public service. And we've talked about how rewarding that is to uh, represent the people. For law students thinking about going into private practice or public service, what factors do you think that they should consider?
0: The the questions that I think are important to ask and things to consider before going into a particular practice or role, I think include first sort of starting broadly and then getting more specific. First, to give consideration to why you've entered the practice of law. And that may seem very straightforward, but a mentor of mine always used to say that some people live to work and some people work to live. So to give some consideration to what motivated you to enter the practice of law. The second question I would pose for individuals to think about would be to consider what your professional goals are and how a particular job will assist you down the path to achieving them. And then the last thing I would say that's important to consider as a jumping off point uh, would be to think about what's motivating you to take a particular job or position. Does that third question fit with your answers to questions number one and number two? So that's, those are the, the pieces of advice I would give as a beginning point. So I know that
1: you uh, have a very strong Twitter presence. You You have a lot of followers and it's an active feed. I know a lot of judges shy away from social media. How do you handle that and how are you so good at it?
0: As a proud member of Generation X, I I had a social media presence at the time that I was appointed. And of course, one of the first things I did was take a long uh, look at the judicial canons and discussed uh, at length with some of my colleagues and mentors uh, their their perspectives and opinions on social media. Um, One of the things that I also did was uh, determine and looked at judges who do engage on Twitter. There's an interesting hashtag, hashtag judges who tweet. And so that research gave me a lot of perspective on great ways that members of the judiciary can engage in social media in a way that doesn't conflict with the judicial canons and provides an opportunity to highlight some of the really wonderful things that are happening in the practice of law and in our courtrooms. And so after doing all of that, it it made me decide that I wanted to uh, be a part of the hashtag Judges Who Tweet universe and have been able to learn a lot from judges across the country uh, and some of the The interesting perspectives that they bring to the practice of of being a member of the judiciary.
1: Well, you seem to use the feed to showcase different panels that you're on, but also ways to be professional. I know that you did a pro tip for the Florida Bar recently regarding professionalism. What other activities outside of the courtroom do you encourage lawyers to participate in to be professional, but also to give back to the community, both legal and their local communities?
0: I encourage all attorneys to take stock of what things make them excited to share with others, those things that light them up internally, so to speak. For some, that's going to be a particular type of pro bono work, and for others, it's going to be local bar association involvement. For me, I'm very passionate about doing work that engages young people, including young lawyers, and helps them to discover their inherent Value and their inherent worth. Helping the next generation figure out how to navigate their own paths by explaining how I have and how I am doing that is really important to me, and it feels meaningful. And so I found myself doing work and being involved with panels where I can mentor and provide my perspective in hopes that it assists someone as they move forward in their career. So I truly think that if you can find a way to give back that gives you as an attorney the opportunity to combine your passion and your purpose, that's where you'll be the most effective rather than perhaps simply doing something because it's what's supposed to be done. Well, keeping with that theme, I know
1: that you serve on the Florida Children and Youth Cabinet um, and that you're quite passionate about that as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what the cabinet does and how you
0: got on the cabinet? Sure. Doing work that's focused on the next generation of leaders is very important to me and it really ties back to uh, some of the first things we were discussing as they relate to my family. I grew up in a household where my parents taught us early on the importance and the joy in sharing our talents with those who had the capacity but not necessarily the opportunities that we had. And it's something that still drives the focus of my community involvement to this day. I have had the honor of working locally and on the state level in volunteer roles that focus on doing precisely that. So one of the things that I've had the honor of doing is serving as a member of the Florida Children and Youth Cabinet which is an entity that was legislatively created in 2007 to focus on improving the self-sufficiency, safety, economic stability, health and quality of life for children and youth in the state of Florida. I was appointed to that role by the governor and the Florida Children and Youth Cabinet is chaired by the First Lady of Florida. And in that role as a cabinet member, I serve alongside the heads of a variety of state agencies whose missions include the delivery of services that directly affect the well-being of children of our state. And so it is a distinct honor to be able to have that opportunity and to contribute my perspective to the work of the Florida Children and Youth Cabinet. One final question
1: before we sign off. If you could give one piece of advice to an attorney appearing in your courtroom, what would that be?
0: If I could give one piece of advice to an attorney appearing in my courtroom, I would say, to do all that you can to bring your best self to court every time you come to court. You know, TV and movies would have us believe that legal reputations are created by handling one big case, one great closing argument, one rhetorical flourish, doing one big great thing once, and that is simply not true. Good professional reputations are built like good houses. They're built one brick after another, after another, after another. And everyone can be prepared, respectful, and honest because none of those things depend on how much experience you have, Uh, but they really do make all of the difference in the world.
1: Well, thank you, Judge Costello. This was so much fun to speak with you today, and I hope that you stay safe. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this edition of Never Contemplated. I'd like to thank Rebecca Bandy and Katie Young at the Henry Latimer Center for Professionalism for their support and Clay Shaw, the technical producer and the Florida Bar's Creative Support Manager. You can find links for information related to the Florida Children and Youth Cabinet mentioned by Judge Costello and the Virgil Hawkins Florida Chapter National Bar Association to read more about Florida's first black lawyers on the Florida Bar website under this podcast. Thank you and be safe.